0: The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Extra trigger warning for this episode we will be discussing missing and murdered Indigenous women and some history around the injustices faced by Indigenous peoples in Canada, both past and present. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia Podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and I realize I have some explaining to do. I've been gone for quite a while. If you follow me on Instagram, at CrimeopediaPod, you would have seen that I posted a message about how over the last few months, life has thrown a number of curveballs my way. Since about August, I've realized that life sometimes gives you lemons and then takes away all the other ingredients you need to make lemonade. To be fair, I certainly needed a break before August, but then things started to change, and through it all, I realized I had to take a step back from several of my responsibilities so I could manage my wellness and focus on my academics as the new academic year was starting. Unfortunately, taking a step back also meant taking a step back from you guys. And for that, and also for not saying something sooner, I'm really sorry. I want to extend a very large and well overdue expression of my gratitude for those who have continued to listen to the show and those who have just found it recently. I really can't wait to get back into the swing of things and continue what I love doing so much, which is bringing you the stories that I feel and that I'm told desperately need a bit more of attention as well as the ones where we can all learn something valuable from, so thank you again. Before we begin, I also wanted to touch on my MMIWG series. If you're new here, a few months ago I committed to a series detailing different facets of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls crisis in Canada. There are only two episodes in the series so far. But in them, I dove into some of the history of the atrocities committed by the Canadian government and how that history has shaped harmful legislation and oppressive systems that continue to uphold disparities for First Nation, Inuit, and Métis people today. I made a commitment to sharing stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls that were framed around certain facets of Canada's colonial history and current existence to both tell the stories of the indigenous women that don't get much media attention, if any at all, but also so that both myself and whomever is listening can indulge in an ongoing learning experience together. As a Canadian and descendant of settlers, it is part of my duty to reconciliation with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples to learn and even more so to uphold that kind of commitment once I've made it. So I am going to continue the series even though I said it would wrap up in December, and it's December. For how long will it continue? That remains to be seen. But it's part of my ask from you as listeners for some patience and some grace as I find my footing here again. Given all that, I wanted to pick up where I left off in the MMIWG series. Today, I'd like to touch on the gendered components of missing and murdered Indigenous women, And I know that sounds kind of contradictory because, of course, inherently, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls refers to those female-identifying. But really, it was my error in naming this series MMIWG and not MMIWG2S+, or Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit Plus peoples. I know it's a mouthful, but understand that queer, gender-fluid, and Two-Spirit Indigenous folks, especially youth, which are all terms I'll dive into during the episode, experience violence comparable in destruction, but much more obscure in magnitude because the statistics about the violence they face simply just don't exist. So what does it mean to be a queer indigenous person in North America? How much more of a risk of violence does one face that compounds all these statistics I already shared with you during the previous episodes in this series? Why is it that queer, two spirit, and gender fluid folks are even less protected, let alone reported on, when they are subject to violent crime? These are all really big questions, but I'd like to touch on them all today. To guide us through our discussion today, I'm going to tell you the story of Kit Mora, a non binary Indigenous youth descendant of the Penticton Indian Band of British Columbia. Kit was living amongst community members of the Colville Confederated Tribes when they went missing in 2021. With that, let's jump right in. If you remember, in 2019, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls published a final report detailing the stories and testimony from thousands of victims and family members about the impacts of the MMIWG crisis after two years of evidence-gathering and hearings. The details of the final report were shocking to many, but not to those who had been awaiting international attention to the crises at hand for decades. If you would like more information about how the National Inquiry came to be and why the final report was undertaken, please check out my first two episodes within my MMIWG series. In addition, I'll have all resources linked on my website at crimopediapod.ca. Within the National Inquiry's final report, amongst the disturbing testimony I already spoke about in this series, were frankly overwhelming concerns that across the country, Canadian police services continuously failed to conduct their due diligence and investigate crimes against Indigenous women and girls. In response to these ongoing concerns, in 2018, before the final report even came out, the National Inquiry established what was effectively a working group called the Forensic Document Review Project, or the FDRP. The FDRP was responsible for identifying exactly what systemic gaps, barriers, and biases existed within the Canadian criminal justice system that allowed for the MMIWG crisis to be so pervasive, but also for the violence to go continuously ignored and uninvestigated. The FDRP was split into two teams, although admittedly I'm not sure why, but one was specifically focused on the province of Quebec, while the other focused on the rest of Canada as a whole. This second team, responsible for consolidating past and present colonial barbarity, institutional racism, gender-based violence, and the inherently dismissive attitudes of law enforcement towards cases involving oppressed and minority populations, issued 30 subpoenas and ended up reviewing over 130,000 documents, totaling about 600,000 pages of evidence files, most of which came directly from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or the RCMP, Canada's federal law enforcement agency. The findings from the FDRP concluded that, in the cases they reviewed, they were overwhelmingly homicides, mostly within the province of Alberta, occurring in a crescendo-type curve, over time peaking around the year 2000 and staying there to present, and most cases reviewed included victims between the ages of 21 and 40 years old. The FDRP's data collection and conclusions resulted in eight primary findings, and you can find the entire list within Annex 1 of the National Inquiry's Final Report, Volume 1B, on the MMIWG crisis, which I will have on my website again, but I want to focus on a select few of their findings. Specifically, I'm going to read out to you finding number 1, finding number 4, and finding number 8. Finding number 1, from the FDRP, states that, quote, there is no reliable estimate of the numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQIA persons in Canada. Finding number 4 states that quote, "Virtually no information with respect to either the numbers or causes of missing and murdered Métis and Inuit women and girls and Indigenous 2S LGBTQIA persons existed." Finally, finding number 8 states that quote, Deaths and disappearances of indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQIA people are marked by indifference. Specifically, prejudice, stereotypes, and inaccurate beliefs and attitudes about indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQIA persons negatively influence police investigations, and therefore deaths and disappearances are investigated and treated differently from other cases. I want to focus on specifically finding four which states that virtually no reliable information about cases involving Métis and Inuit women and girls, as well as queer Indigenous folks, really exists. If you have listened to my previous episodes in this series, you will have heard me remark about how little information is available about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, especially compared to other cases I have covered on the show where resources are in abundance and I can easily cross-check, verify, and validate information that I'm reading. Imagine my total lack of surprise when not only did I struggle to find any available information about the unique ways in which queer, two-spirit, and gender-fluid indigenous people are subject to violence within the MMIWG orbit, but also imagine my surprise when we know that these cases exist and I still could not find any names, let alone their stories. To be fair, I was shocked, but maybe not necessarily surprised. I was shocked because those championing for queer Indigenous visibility are breaking barriers for Indigenous youth safety, but not surprised necessarily because the Canadian criminal justice system, like much of North American governance, moves at excruciatingly slow paces. But then again, organizations such as the Two-Spirit Indigiqueer Circle, founded in response to a report produced in 2022 by the LGBT Families Coalition and Women and Gender Equality Canada, strive to address the complex needs and inequities built into intersectional or overlapping identities, such as being indigenous and queer, two-spirit, or gender-fluid in North America. I guess I falsely held out hope that societal attitudes, moving very slowly, admittedly, towards acceptance of these identities, possibly be reflected in the way that our justice system operates. You'd think after almost three years of running this show, I should know better. But I digress. Through the realization that queer, two-spirit, and gender-fluid indigenous peoples are not only disproportionately subject to even more violence in North America, and that it's even worse because law enforcement doesn't even care about their cases, I also realize that many people don't even know what terms such as two-spirit even mean. So before we go any further, let's define some terms. Two-spirit is a colonial English term that is used to broadly capture umbrella concepts of gender fluidity within First Nations, Inuit, and Métis cultures. According to an organization I found called Researching for LGBTQ2S Health, the creation of the term can be attributed to Elder Myra Laramie, who proposed it during an annual Intertribal Native American, First Nations, Gay and Lesbian American Conference in 1990 in Winnipeg in the province of Manitoba. Since then, the term Two-Spirit has been adopted broadly as both a formal and informal term referring to a large breadth of sexual orientations and gender variances. At its core, at least what is accepted in formal governmental context, is that two-spirit refers to those whose gender identity, spiritual identity, and or sexual orientation are comprised of both male and female spirits within the context of their cultures. A quote from Alexandria Wilson from 2007, a professor at the University of Saskatchewan, which is referenced in that 2022 report about the needs of LGBT indigenous families, says, quote, Two-spirit identity is one that reflects Aboriginal people's process of coming in to an empowered identity that integrates their sexuality, culture, gender, and all other aspects of who they understand and know themselves to be. When we say we are two-spirit, we are acknowledging that we are spiritually meaningful people. Two-spirit identity may encompass all aspects of who we are, including our culture, sexuality, gender, spirituality, community, and relationship to the land. Further, Fiona Meyer-Cook, professor of social work at Vancouver Island University, and Diane LaBelle, one of the co-founders of the two-spirit indigiqueer circle I mentioned, address elements of belonging that are captured within two-spirit identities in a 2004 publication. Together, LaBelle and Meyer-Cook say, quote, Rather than being a taboo or reason to ostracize or isolate, what was different and unique about two-spirit peoples historically was often embraced as their qualities were seen to add value and contribute to life within the communities. Something I want to note here as we discuss the context of two-spirit identities is that a number of indigenous languages in North America don't actually have words or phrases that describe gender fluidity in the same way that two-spirit as a term seems to do in the way that is all-encompassing. Two-spirit identities are celebrated within indigenous cultures. Only in colonial contexts does being two-spirit come with an increased likelihood of victimization. Despite zero statistics about the violence that queer and two-spirit Indigenous folks experience, which is again compounded by the same likelihoods of violence faced by Indigenous women and girls, there is no argument or debate that these individuals are at a higher risk of being victimized. Further, there is no argument that their cases often go underreported, if reported about in media at all, and per the FDRP from the National Inquiry, these cases are often met with indifference by law enforcement. These sentiments ring true across North American boundaries as the United States Department of Justice or the DOJ acknowledges that gender non-conforming individuals are at an extremely high risk of being victimized with crimes against those individuals increasing approximately 590% between 2013 in 2019, not even accounting for the compounding effects of disproportionate violence against Indigenous peoples. Further, the DOJ released a statement about a missing Indigenous, gender nonconforming conforming youth living in Washington state named Kit Mora, where they said that Kit being non-binary put them at a higher risk of becoming a victim of human trafficking and other potentially deadly predators who target youth struggling with social identities by exploiting their vulnerabilities. Esmeralda Kitmora was 17 years old back in 2021 when they went missing. Kit was 4 years old when they were removed from the custody of their biological mother's care in Omak, Washington, and placed into the care of their great grandparents, Bonnie and Charles Grew, who lived in Yakima. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Kit is a descendant of the Penticton Indian Band of British Columbia, and they also have Hispanic heritage leaving them with piercing, dark brown eyes and long, beautiful, black hair. Kit's adoptive sister, Charlotte Grew, also says that Kit is soft-spoken, with an infectious laugh. They were a, quote, "...lover of animals and people. They love art, and they express through it. Kit is a very sweet person." When Kit moved in with the Grew family, they grew closer with Charlotte, and Charlotte acted as an older sister to Kit. Recognizing that they had come from a tumultuous home with reported abuse that has now, since Kit's disappearance, become anything but a private matter, which is unfortunately how Kit tried to keep things. According to friends and their adoptive family, Kit reportedly never wanted to speak much about the life they had before moving in with their grandparents. But according to Charlotte and Kit's best friend, Amethyst, Kit suffered with severe anxiety, quote, obvious signs of trauma, and always seemed nervous about anything including physical touch. Despite their seemingly very young, traumatic childhood experiences, Kit dared to embrace themselves and their identity. Kit was a very active member of the LGBTQQIA2S plus community and would end up spending the next approximately 12 years in Yakima in Okanagan County, Washington with their adoptive family, doing their best to overcome the circumstances they were born into. It didn't take very long for Kit to become very close with that friend, Amethyst. Right away, it seemed like when the two met as children at Terrace Heights Elementary School, they were meant to be in each other's lives. According to Amethyst, Kit was shy, but not necessarily with her. Even when Amethyst moved away for a bit, when she returned to Terrace Heights, her and Kit picked up exactly where they had left off. According to an interview given by Amethyst for the Yakima Herald Republic, her and Kit bonded over music, art, horses, and dragons. They were kids together and they didn't spend a second apart that they didn't have to. Unlike anybody else, even though they tried, Amethyst understood Kit, and reportedly they even shared a brief romantic relationship together. But as Kit felt safe enough to embrace their evolving two-spirited identity and came out as asexual and aromantic, Amethyst understood, and they remained close friends. Despite no longer being interested in romance or sexual encounters, Amethyst and Kit remained close enough where, when Kit moved back to OMAC in 2021, away from Yakima, Amethyst wasn't necessarily worried about the state of their friendship. Amethyst knew it would survive this. However, when she didn't hear from Kit at all, in the fall of 2021, after a series of more and more distant and farther apart text messages, that's when she became worried about Kit. It's being reported that Kit moved back to OMAC in 2021 to reconnect with their biological mother, which seems like an interesting move given the traumatic childhood Kit reportedly had, but according to Kit's friends and their adopted family, things were looking bright. According to Hero Windsor for the Cooper Point Journal, Kit's mother had quote-unquote cleaned up and Kit even secured a position as a teaching assistant on top of their studies at the Omak High School in their favorite class, art. According to that same article, given the pain and anxiety Kit had struggled with and the beautiful young person they were becoming whom their mother was missing out on, Charlotte, Kit's adoptive sister, was encouraging the mend of their relationship. By all accounts, at least from what I'm reading, it seemed like people were hopeful that this would be a positive thing for both Kit and their mother. Now, when Kit gets back to Omak, the timeline here gets a little messy, so bear with me. But more importantly, I want you to keep in mind that during all of this, Kit's loved ones back in Yakima were undertaking an investigation into their sudden disappearance completely alone, without the help of any law enforcement, despite them being readily able to put the pieces together, and come to the conclusion that something was very wrong. According to several articles I read, the very last confirmed sighting of Kit was either a social media post of them around Christmas of 2021, or an in-person sighting of Kit from their biological mother's live-in boyfriend at the time, sometime early 2022. However, Kit's friends, including Amethyst, and their adoptive family, did not hear from Kit after approximately November of 2021. In January of 2022, only two months later, if we're taking that November 2021 as their official last-seen date, Kit was disenrolled from OMAC High School due to absences. This was very surprising for Kit's adoptive family to learn as a state law in Washington called Becca's Bill requires all children between the ages of 8 and 18 to attend school regularly, and requires schools to notify families when children are absent in addition to working with them to ensure the child gets back to school. According to Becca's bill, if that doesn't work, a student's family can either be referred to a community engagement board for mediation, or a court of law. But regardless, steps have to be taken if a child is absent. But reportedly, in Kit's case, None of these steps were undertaken by OMAC High or the school board, despite again, those who knew Kit knew that they would never simply neglect their responsibilities as a teaching assistant or give up on their passion for art. Kit would not just leave, and this didn't make any sense. But unfortunately, the people who knew Kit the best did not find out about this until much later. When Kit's adoptive family and Amethyst began looking for Kit on their own because they were left completely in the dark after Kit stopped responding to text messages and social media messages, they were dismissed by police and told that Kit had simply run away. They were being given the runaround. Reportedly, Kit's adoptive family had been requesting wellness checks on Kit at the home of their biological mother where they lived, and all that was reported back by officers was that Kit was quote-unquote fine, according to a, quote, dark-haired woman with a baby, presumably Kit's mother, and OMAC police took that at face value despite not seeing Kit physically at all. All of this, bear in mind, is occurring while police are fully aware that child welfare services had a case against Kit's biological mother back when they were removed from the home when Kit was four years old. After about a year of questions and uncertainty, In November of 2022, Amethyst and her grandmother drove from Yakima to Omak to visit the police station themselves, put up missing persons flyers, and speak with people who might be acquainted with Kit. Amethyst took it upon herself, still with Kit at the forefront of her brain, and marched right into the Omak police station and asked to speak with whomever was overseeing their case related to the wellness checks that had been called in continuously and informed the police that she was worried Kit had hurt themselves or was in danger. To that, according to a report for K5 News by PJ Rundewaha, OMAC police provided almost no comment, only suggesting that Kit had run away, which is what apparently they were told by Kit's biological mother. This was brand new information to Amethyst and all those who cared about Kit, that apparently, their biological mother had reported Kit missing two months prior in September of 2022 without consulting Kit's adoptive family or friends. Keep in mind, this was still almost a year after anyone's last communications with Kit. And even two months after that report, police still did not care to investigate and took Kit's biological mother's word at face value again. Even worse was according to that same K5 News article, earlier that year in the summer of 2022 before Kit was even reported missing, their biological mother once again had her children seized by child welfare services on account of abuse and neglect. Yet, somehow, this was not big enough of a red flag for OMAC police, despite many people actively looking for Kit only a few months later. More information was divulged by OMAC police later, which included the fact that they were informed from Kit's mother that Kit likely ran away with an online boyfriend, which that story later changed to an online girlfriend. Amethyst, who knew Kit the best, knew that this once again didn't make any sense for Kit as they were asexual and aromantic, as I mentioned. Part of Kit's two-spirited identity, aside from being gender non-conforming, was being aromantic. It made no sense that they had an online boyfriend or girlfriend or partner of any kind. They were not interested. That was not part of their identity. Even further, Amethyst knew that Kit was anxious, unfortunately suffered trauma and needed to trust people deeply, but yet somehow to police, They were inclined to believe that Kit would run away with a random person online. And police did not care that this didn't make any sense. They did not understand two-spirited identities. They did not understand the vulnerability that Kit was ascribed with the state of their childhood and the caregiver they were living with. They did not put the pieces together and figured words like gender non-conforming meant some weird romantic behavior, runaway troubled behavior, and again, took Kit's mother's words stand alone, despite a rally of people arguing otherwise. At the time of recording in December of 2023, Kit is still missing. This past year, they would have graduated high school, and only recently have efforts been undertaken to investigate their disappearance after immense pressure from Kit's loved ones and surrounding community members. The OMAC police officially say Kit went missing on the arbitrary date of April 15th of 2022, which according to my research holds no significance to any of the moving pieces in this case. Although I will say, this does signal to me that there is some evidence not disclosed to the public, because it would be months later that Kit's biological mother would report them missing. Police would have somehow had to retroactively confirm that that date meant something. But it doesn't seem like there's any news media or journalists who are pressing to find out what that information is, which is a stark contrast to some of the popular cases we hear about online, where every single excruciating detail is published, vetted, published again. Kit just unfortunately hasn't gotten that. Thankfully, their loved ones have rallied around them in their absence. They continuously organize searches around OMAC with community members to search on the ground for evidence of Kit. It's them who are putting up posters and reportedly, Kit's biological mother who has allegedly been seen taking them down. It's Charlotte Grew, Kit's adoptive sister, whose father organized a $10,000 reward for information leading to those responsible for Kit's disappearance, their safe return, or concrete evidence of foul play. Not the OMAC police, and not the FBI. Frankly, the FBI didn't even get involved until late 2022 when a petition was circulating around Yakima to have them investigate. Now, as of 2023, finally, the OMAC police, the FBI, and the Colville Tribal Police Department concede that Kit's disappearance is suspicious. However, there has been no movement on the case, at least that I can find. This may be because nothing has happened, it also may be because cases involving Indigenous youth again are hardly reported on. The only reliable source I can find for updates about Kit's case are on a Facebook page called Finding Kit. It seems to me that this page is organized by Kit's adoptive family, the Gru family, and some of Kit's closest friends. However, even the updates on there are simply just that their biological mother is moving from place to place, somehow evading investigation month after month, And personally, I often try not to position myself in these cases, but I believe it is an extreme oversight not to investigate the people who were reported to have last seen Kit alive, and that includes their biological mother, especially when there are open case files with child welfare services, even one involving the apprehension of Kit, and there are multiple testimonies from acquaintances who recognize these people as dangerous to them. I personally believe that if acted upon sooner, Kit's case may have already been solved. For queer youth, ending up under the care of ill-intended people can be a matter of life or death. For indigenous queer youth, these overlapping identities mean that, if it comes down to death or disappearance, those responsible for holding ill-intended people accountable may just never get around to it in time. A public vigil was held for Kit Mora in OMAC back in October of 2022, hosted by Kit's loved ones and other community members within Okanagan County. To many, including Kit's adoptive family, it's pretty obvious who is responsible for, or at least privy to, the circumstances surrounding their disappearance, as is evident by that Facebook page Finding Kit. Some go as far to speculate that Kit's biological mother subdued them into human trafficking, which seems to be implied by the Department of Justice's earlier comments. Others believe that Kit's biological mother had it out for Kit, for being an active member of the LGBTQIA 2S community. Despite police being pretty tight-lipped about where they are, if anywhere, in their investigation, some think that the real answer lies somewhere in between and the lack of justice has been exacerbated for the same reasons as we mentioned before. No respect for indigenous youth, let alone those who are queer. Kit Mora is five foot six and approximately 190 pounds. They have brown eyes and dark black hair. Photos will be available on my website and Instagram at crimopediapod.ca, and at crimopediapod, respectively. If you have any information at all about Kit Mora, you can contact the OMAC Washington Police, who are now, finally, actively taking phone calls and reports about Kit, at 1-509-826-0383. Kit's case number is K22-4101. The total lack of information and transparency from police in the investigation of Kitmore's disappearance is infuriating. Kit's case is just one of many, many cases that definitely exist, just simply aren't documented, where queer indigenous youth are victimized and their cases, again, are met with neglect and dismissal. According to the National Inquiry, a lack of consistent and accurate databases about the disappearances and deaths of two-spirit and LGBTQIA 2S plus Indigenous peoples contributes to the quote, erasure or invisibility of these individuals and their experiences. In a report for Extra magazine by Cameron Perrier, Emma Antone, a two spirit Anishinaabe youth living in Victoria in the province of British Columbia, who works actively in their community to indigenize sexual health, says that communities already have ways of taking care of each other and responding to colonial violence that seeps through our modern societies in unique ways. To me, that is evident by the care that was offered by Kit's adoptive family and their friends. Even more so, juxtaposing that with the lack of care that was offered by police. As we've discussed before in this series, Historical colonial violence really isn't historical at all. It continues to affect indigenous peoples here and now, today and everywhere. Like hot magma from Earth's mantle, breaking through bedrock in streams and spewing out through the crust, branches in streams of colonial violence continue to affect people in intersecting and deeply destructive ways. Throughout this series, I hope to continue investigating and reflecting on the ways in which these systems work. Like a spider web, oppressive systems weave together a net of society that seeks to continue indigenous erasure. But like I always say, as active, true crime content consumers, it is our job to do better, not just for the cases or the people that we find the most interesting, not just for the victims of the fascinating serial killers, but for the people like Kit Mora, who deserve justice. Learn their name, learn their face, and together as a collective... We take down these systems one case at a time. Thank you all again for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia Podcast. I am submitting this episode as a final project for one of my courses, so thank you very much to my professor for allowing me the opportunity to use my creative medium to tell the story of Kit Mora in a meaningful way to my broader audience while also reflecting some of the learning outcomes in the course. Thank you again to my listeners who have been incredibly patient with me as I navigate some difficult personal life circumstances. And thank you to all my friends who have been there for me during this time, keeping me accountable and reminding me about the things that I've been striving for and hope to achieve and love to do so much, and encouraging me to take care of myself so I can get back to a place where I feel like I can engage in all of those things once again. As usual, you can find all of the resources for this episode on my website at crimopediapod.ca. And if you wanna talk about this case a little further, you can send me a message on there or you can send me a DM on Instagram at crimopediapod. I'd be happy to chat about this case and I'd also be really, really happy to hear any updates if any of my listeners happen to have any as they are really hard to come by in this case, but I know Kit's family has been tirelessly working on trying to figure out what happened. With that, I thank you again, and hopefully I'll see you soon for the next one.